welcome to Ear Read This, the podcast that swivels books around in your ear holes to wax lyrical about literature. My name's Ash, and today I'll be talking about The Taming of the Shrew. Is this controversial comedy a piece of anti-feminist dogma or an ironic gender-bending metatheatrical game? Who is Christopher Sly, and where did he go? Is the play a farce or a comedy? Are its defenders Shakespeare apologists who are blind to the play's misogyny? Is it about an actual shrew? Well, we can start there. I'm afraid not. But Shakespeare's might not have been the only shrew to skitter across the boards in his lifetime. Another text is in existence, an anonymously written play entitled The Taming of Ashrew. Was this an Elizabethan version of two film studios simultaneously saying, we're going to do talking ants? Or are the two texts, in fact, imperfectly reconstructed versions of the same Shakespearean original? Other possibilities include two texts by different authors that were drawn from a third, earlier shrew, one that evidently didn't catch the worm as it is now lost and forgotten. Or the common practice of Shakespeare simply taking a contemporary's play and rehashing it. The Taming of Ashrew was published first, in 1594, and for years was, erroneously in the view of many editors, attributed to Shakespeare. Only in 1623, when Shakespeare had been dead seven years, was the version we now take as his work published in the first folio. That being said, Dana E. Aspinall points out that, quote, no existing evidence suggests that the two texts were ever distinguished one from the other until well into the 18th century. As we'll see, this play is an endless game of doubling. Characters swap identities, there are plays within plays. So to have this little kink in the tale of the Shrew's publication history seems kind of perfect. As I mentioned in last week's episode on The Two Gentlemen of Verona, an outbreak of plague in 1592 led theatres to close and caused many acting companies to dissemble. So these two texts may well be garbled versions of one another based on the scraps different companies held on to in the plague hiatus. As well as some glaring evidences of fumbled writing, including Ashrew's plagiarism of several passages from Shakespeare's peer and chief rival Christopher Marlowe, there are many differences between the two versions, including a change of location from Padua in Shakespeare's to Athens in Ashrew, and a change of every character's name except for Kate and Christopher Sly. It's the latter I want to focus on for the moment. Christopher Sly is the first character who speaks in The Taming of the Shrew. I'm referring for the moment solely to the folio version, the one widely accepted as Shakespeare's. He's a drunkard, collapsed outside an alehouse in Warwickshire, spotted by a mischievous lord who whisks him away, has him dressed up in finery, and when he awakes, persuades him that he too is a lord. Sly, upon waking, says, Have I dreamed till now? I do not sleep. I see, I hear, I speak. I smell sweet savours and I feel soft things. The Lord's players perform for Sly what in the Lord's words is a pleasant comedy, supposedly recommended by Sly's doctors, quote, seeing too much sadness hath congealed your blood and melancholy is the nurse of frenzy. Therefore they thought it good you hear a play and frame your mind to mirth and merriment, which bars a thousand harms and lengthens life. This play turns out to be The Taming of the True. Shakespeare has begun his play with a metatheatrical trick in his prologue, or as it is titled, an induction, something he uses nowhere else in the rest of his work. The label's induction, says David Daniel, quote, though in some senses technically correct, if unshakespearean, only go back as far as Pope. One of the key differences between the two texts, Ashrew and The Shrew, 
is that while in Ashru, Sly reappears at the end of the play to deliver a concluding moral, in Shakespeare's The Shrew, he simply vanishes. This pleasant comedy, then, has begun with a sly joke. What appears to be a character of centrality becomes simply another audience member. It has been suggested that the induction indicated Shakespeare was planning a full-length English play, but then bottled it and moved the action of the scene to Padua. So, without further ado, let's settle in like Christopher Sly and move to Padua, where the play proper begins. Arthur Quiller Couch, writing in 1928, says that, quote, The trouble about the shrew is that although it reads rather ill in the library, it goes very well on the stage. In more recent history, the opposite argument has been made. In 1987, the theatre critic Michael Billington suggested a moratorium on new productions of the shrew, arguing that a play so offensive to modern sensibilities, quote, should be put back firmly and squarely on the shelf. Even before Quiller Couch, George Bernard Shaw in 1897 described the last scene as, quote, altogether disgusting to modern sentiments. What Quiller Couch is presumably getting at is that since the taming of the shrew is to some extent a farce, the powerfully misogynistic overtones of the play are in performance steamrolled by light buffoonery. As Robert B. Heilman puts it, quote, A great many people, no doubt all of us at times, take pleasure in seeing human beings acting as if they were very limited human beings. Farce offers a spectacle that resembles daily actuality, but lets us participate without feeling the responsibilities and liabilities that the situation would normally evoke. Dana E. Aspinall comments that, quote, Those who see the most farce in the shrew also seem least inclined to disparage or condemn Shakespeare for any perceptible ideological alignment with either his folk or continental sources or his era's pervasive anti-feminist sentiments. Let's start with those folk sources, Aspinall mentions. Shrew-taming narratives in which a husband forces a shrewish scold of a wife to stop being quick-tempered or sharp-tongued were common in Shakespeare's day. Presented as cosy fables, they now read like stories of psychological or physical torture. In some, the husband makes displays of violence to frighten his wife into submission by killing a dog or a horse. One particularly notorious example from 1560, titled A Merry Jest of a Shrewd and Cursed Wife Lapped in Moral Skin, features a husband killing a horse, salting its hide, wrapping it round his wife and beating it until she submits. While Shakespeare stops clear of violence against his shrew, although she is threatened with it when she slaps her wooer, Petruchio, who responds by saying, I swear I'll cuff you if you strike again, other nasty remembrances of tales like the merry jest surface in the wordplay. He makes great hay, no pun intended, from many horse puns and allusions, in which the patriarchal image of man as rider and woman as ridden beast that needs bridling surfaces. Before Petruchio has even laid eyes on Kate, he announces, For I will board her as though she chide as loud as thunder when the clouds in autumn crack. These connotations were emphasised in the 18th century when actor David Garrick performed his Petruchio armed with a whip, a prop that became, for many years, indivisible from the character. While no whip is present in Shakespeare's text, the connotations are alo alone are enough to make the reading of the play distasteful, connotations that can be elided by strategic cuts and a farcical performance. 
But while the Kate Petruccio shrew-taming aspect of the plot contains strong elements of farce, another plot thread involving the simultaneous wooing of Kate's sister Bianca is more restrained, sharing more in common with Greek new comedy than farce. New comedy would typically feature a triumph over thwarted love, cruel fathers and wily slaves. In The Taming of the Shrew, once the induction and Christopher Sly are out of the way, a wealthy young nobleman called Lucentio falls immediately in love with Bianca and contrives a plot to marry her. Although her father, Baptista, appears to dote on Bianca, he remains the cruel obstacle in that he insists his older daughter, Kate, our shrew, will be married before Bianca, thus letting the two plots and wooings intermingle and co-depend on each other. Luckily for Lucentio, no sooner has he begun his campaign than Petruccio enters saying, I have thrust myself into this maze, happily to wive and thrive as best I may. Shakespeare also borrows the wily slave figure, a clever subservient, an ancestor perhaps of Bertie Wooster's Jeeves, in Tranio, Lucentio's servant who swaps places with Lucentio in order to steal him into the house of Baptista, disguised as a Latin tutor in order to be close to Bianca. This plot is borrowed from George Gascoigne's The Supposes, a prose translation of an Italian drama by Ludovico Ariosto. As the title implies, it includes a series of disguises and confused or concealed identities, and Shakespeare uses more than one in this thread of his play. Bianca's other suitor, Hortensio, also affects to be a tutor to be close to Bianca. Within the play's opening act, then, three characters we have been introduced to are already performing under different names. This may seem like a wild proliferation of genres and sources, but what is important to observe is how Shakespeare uses the models to instruct each other. The typically romantic and happy conclusion of new comedy is given short shrift, and perhaps even exposed as bogus by the far more enjoyable farcical matching of Petruccio and Kate. The moment Kate appears, Shakespeare makes the farcical elements apparent by having her threaten her sister's hapless suitors. She might, quote, comb your noddle with a three-legged stool. Bianca says... Old fashions please me best. I am not so nice to change true rules for odd inventions. This is clearly not the case with Shakespeare, who somehow manages to construct a believable coupling out of farce, despite the shallow reasons for Petruccio's intent. He says in his first scene that wealth is the burden of my wooing dance. So how can this shallow, farcical wooing dance end happily? Kate, or Katharina, says in Taming of the Shrew that women must have a spirit to resist if she is not to be ill-used. Victor Kiernan said that, quote, Women are subjected in the comedies, much more than men, to all sorts of mishaps and ordeals, perhaps because, in the poet's eyes, they have more meaning for the human future. Ruskin went even stronger than this, saying that, quote, Shakespeare had no heroes, only heroines. Much critical discussion surrounding the shrew centres on whether to read it as an ethically queasy Elizabethan relic or as a crude but harmless farce. If the latter then the characters can't merit the same moralistic grilling as those from the tragedies. Some critics have said that Shakespeare's progressively humane view, displayed in elsewhere in his work, is evidence that he wasn't a misogynist. Yet others have argued that the defences of Taming of the Shrew stem from male critics attempting to rehabilitate Shakespeare's ethics out of bardolatry. This confusion extends to productions of the Shrew, which in recent times have often subverted the text by having Kate not submit, but go along with Petruccio willingly, as Linda E. Boos describes in relation to feminist readings of the play, quote, Confronted by a ritual of self-debasement, the women strive to construct another narrative that will rationalise their stooping. Others have performed the Shrew straight, but as a tragedy of patriarchal suppression. In fact, there was a sequel written to Shakespeare's play, entitled The Woman's Prize, written by Shakespeare collaborator John Fletcher, 
in which Petruccio, recently widowed, marries another shrew and is subjected to treatment similar to that he inflicted on Kate in Taming of the Shrew. My personal suspicion is that this does not reflect an outcry of feminist thinking in Elizabethan times so much as a recycling of comic farcical tropes that could be applied to anyone. Characters, once entering a farce, lose the trappings of their gender and become cartoons. At performances of Shakespeare's plays, class divisions remained intact in that the poorer classes stood or sat on the floor in the open air while the wealthy sat under cover. However, women were free to attend and there were no segregated areas for them as there were widespread in European theatres. The critic A. Harbage described Elizabethan theatre as, quote, a democratic institution in an intensely undemocratic age. So how can we best imagine what it was like for an Elizabethan woman watching a play like Taming of the Shrew? And what was life like for her outside of the theatre? Despite the fact that foreign visitors to England noticed a surprising freedom in its women, especially those of the better-off classes, David Underdown calls early modern England a, quote, period of strained gender relations that lay at the heart of the crisis of order. Victor Kiernan says of Shakespeare's day that it was, quote, a period of half-dawn, when an old order and its panorama of life were fading or crumbling, and a new one was only fitfully taking shape. History and mythology jostled, jostled together, magic and science, theology and reason. Such a situation might be ideal for poetic impulses. Jostled, turning into Sean Connery here. A parallel might be made with our own time, when the rights of people of a non-normative gender are being discussed and supported more than ever, yet the backlash from, if you like, the old order, is ever-present. Linda E. Boos reflects on, quote, the sudden upsurge in witchcraft trials and other court accusations against women, the gendering of various available forms of punishment, and the invention in these years of additional punishments specifically designated for women. These included a metal bridle attached to a woman's head if she'd been accused of nagging or scolding. Once sil silenced with the metal bit in her mouth, she would be carted through the community to publicly shame her. A fleeting reference to this can be found in The Taming of the Shrew when Gremio, one of Bianca's suitors, says of Katharina that he'd rather cart her than court her. Another infamous female punishment was the cooking stool, C-U-C-K, in which a woman was strapped to a stool and dunked in water. Boos says that, quote, the veritable prototype of the female offender of this era seems to be in fact the woman marked out as a scold or a shrew. Despite the era's rife obsession with female infidelity, the punishments show a distinct effort to punish female speech rather than sexual transgression. Peter Stalibras mentions that, quote, in the Jacobean theatre, genital differentiation tended to be subsumed within a problematically gendered orality. Linda E. Boos adds to this, saying that, quote, the talkative woman is frequently imagined as synonymous with the sexually available woman, her open mouth the signifier for invited entrance elsewhere. Hence the dictum that associates silent with chaste and stigmatises women's public speech as a behaviour fraught with cultural signs resonating with a distinctly sexual sense of shame. There are other references in The Shrew that uh, women in Shakespeare's audience would have recognised. Kate says at the prospect of her sister marrying while she is still a maid that she, quote, must dance barefoot on her wedding day and furthermore lead apes in hell. Both were what proverbially happened to unmarried women. Old maids lead apes in hell because they have no children to lead in heaven. Despite, or perhaps because, of this, the shrew was, according to M.C. Bradbook, quote, the oldest and indeed the only native comic role for women. M.C., I think, are his initials, not his day job. However, in the view of Neville Coghill, Kate is no shrew at all. 
Instead, she, quote, developed the defensive technique of shrewishness as a countermand to her horrible family, the father who wishes to sell her to the highest bidder and her sly little sister. So what is the truth? Is Kate an ironic or in-your-face shrew? Petruccio, as I have said, doesn't go as far as acting physically violent with Kate, but is he raising the spectre of these shrew punishments when he says, quote, this is a way to kill a wife with kindness. In the second act of Taming of the Shrew, Petruccio politically begins his reign, incidentally another equine pun, by wooing Kate by refusing to kowtow to her withering remarks and scorn. Her unhappy words are merely winds, and he a mountain, that shakes not though they blow perpetually. He lays out his plan for the audience by saying, Say that she rail, why then, I'll tell her plain, she sings as sweetly as a nightingale. Say that she frown, I'll say she looks as clear as morning roses newly washed with dew. Say she be mute, and will not speak a word, then I'll commend her volubility, and say she uttereth piercing eloquence. Kate is perturbed by his ensuing performance, saying, Where did you study all this goodly speech? It is extempore, says Petruccio, from my mother wit. The two trade wits, and Petruccio announces happily that they will be married on Sunday, much to her father's joy. Kiss me, Kate, says Petruccio, providing the title for the shrew-inspired Cole Porter musical. Here, on the surface... We have seen a braggart blow into a house, woo an unwilling woman, and flatly trample her misgivings. On the other hand, and in the words of Mark Van Doren, quote, Our secret occupation, as we watch the taming of the true, consists of noting the stages by which both Petruccio and Katharina, both of them, for in spite of everything the business is mutual, surrender to the fact of their affection. Shakespeare has done this not by violating his form, not by forgetting at any point to write farce, and least of all by characterising the couple. He has left them man and woman. Jermaine Greer seems to agree with this, saying that Shrew is, quote, the cunning adaptation of a folk motif to show the forging of a partnership between equals. Determining the mutuality of this business is the key. For while Kate is brought to see the world as Petruccio sees it, Petruccio apes Catherine's tactics in order to woo her. A certain intermingling of characters occurs, and the couple realise the power of acting apart in order to get what they want, i.e. each other. This is demonstrated if one takes an ironic reading of Kate's final speech, extolling the virtues of wifely submission, by the fact that her pretense of, quote, virtue and obedience gets her husband a further 20,000 crowns from her impressed father. Petruccio teaches Kate to see as he does, saying that the sun is the moon or the moon the sun, and that old Vicentio is a budding young virgin. Kate later apologises to Vicentio, saying, Her eyes that have been so bedazzled with the sun that everything I look on seemeth green. Jean Addison Roberts comments on this, saying that, quote, As a couple, she and Petruccio have emerged from the underworld of lost and mistaken identities to the green world presided over by the one true father. In A Midsummer Night's Dream, Theseus advises Hermia that, quote, A father should be as a god, one that composed your beauties, yea, and one to whom you are but a form in wax, by him imprinted and within his power to leave the figure or disfigure it. Similarly, in The Two Gentlemen of Verona, Julia describes her maid Lissetta as a table on which to engrave her thoughts. Leaving aside the patriarchal overtones of the former quote, 
This notion of imprinting by love, whether it is religious or romantic love, love between friends or family, seems to be particularly relevant to Taming of the Shrew. Unremarked upon, Petruccio and Kate imprint themselves on one another, take on aspects of each other, highlighting that the strength of their love far outstrips that shared by other characters in the play. I say unremarked upon, but throughout the play, some characters do seem to get a a certain sense of what's happening here. Even the hard-done-by servant Curtis says, By this reckoning, he is more shrew than she. Gremio and Bianca emphasise this two-way exchange even further in their shared couplet at the wedding. That being mad herself, she's madly mated. I warrant him, Petruccio's cated. Petruccio's efforts to communicate to Kate that beneath pretenses they might be happy together can be, can be seen displayed in their marriage scene when Petruccio's wild attire steals the limelight from his brides. According to E.M.W. Tillyard, these are emblematic of Petruccio's message of these are to my true self what your own shrewishness is to your true self and each as well as the other can change the assumed self for the real one. Just before their mad marriage, Petruccio makes this quite clear. To me she's married not unto my clothes. However, all this could be the gloss of another person determined to read or imprint into Shakespeare the moral we desire. There is plenty of argument for the opposite. If we read no irony into Katharina's final speech, the play becomes a more straightforward and deeply upsetting tale of a previously strong-willed woman indoctrinated into behaving well for a domineering husband, who we have witnessed psychologically intimidate her, mock her, as well as starve her. Ultimately, as Linda E. Boos puts it, quote, what is under covert recuperation and imagined as tacitly at stake is the institution of heterosexual marriage. Ergo, the ending of the play is, like many comedies, a happy reversion to the status quo. But the happiness in this case is severely compromised by the status quo being patriarchal autonomy. This is promised by Petruccio, who famously marks Kate as his property, saying, I will be master of what is mine own. She is my goods, my chattels, she is my house, my household stuff, my field, my barn, my horse, my ox, my ass, my anything. One of the problems in determining the truth, aside from the obvious sad fact that Shakespeare left no helpful introductions or writerly memoirs, is that we also don't get much of an insight into Kate's mind. We must glean what we can from her words, for as David Daniel has said, quote, The speed of all this action in the central scenes, in the third and fourth acts, helps by presenting not so much development of character as a set of projected slides, almost cartoons of the wedding, the journey, the honeymoon, and so on. Katharina is not alone in finding it all unreal. It is part of a play. She, then, is as unprepared for the events of the play as we are, and there is no time for an illuminating soliloquy to see inside Kate's mind. The arguments for Taming of the Shrew being a nasty reminder of shrew-taming fables and a thoughtlessly anti-feminist play are strong. If one takes a biographical reading, it's hard to dismiss Shakespeare's other references to no good wives and the fact of his own marriage to a supposed shrew, a woman eight years older than him. On the other hand, there is the undeniable fact that the romance, depth and character of the play is to be found in the shrew storyline, not the traditionally new comedy plot of the two lovers Bianca and Lucentio. As Margaret Lale Mikesell puts it, quote, Yet in true, the love marriage toward which so many unnecessary energies have been directed is shown to be shallow, its attractions unreliable. The characters lifted from George Gascoigne, who have been busy dressing up as other characters in order to finagle their intendeds, have ended up with compromised identities. Bianca and Lucentio, once married, are shown to not have the interdependency honest Petruccio and honest Kate have. They also appear to have no agency than further transformations. As Hortensio says of Bianca, If once I find thee raging, Hortensio will be quit with thee by changing. 
which is indeed what he does, plumping for a wealthy widow as soon as Bianca is stolen from him. Thus his love is shown to be an affectation. Further, Lucentio sums up at the end of the play that love wrought these miracles, Bianca's love has made me exchange my state with Tranio. Here he doesn't know what he indicates to the audience, that only Petruchio has tried to woo as himself. The metamorphic themes are again induced by Baptista, who comments that his daughter is changed as she had never been. This of course means precious little to our ears if we are given to understand that Baptista has no real conception of what his daughter is like. The best argument for Shakespeare's rejection of a traditionally shrew-taming tale leads us back to the induction. As Maynard Mack puts it, quote, what the Lord and his servants do in thrusting a temporary identity in, on Sly is echoed in what Petruchio does for Kate at a deeper level of psychic change. Many critics have pointed to a doubling or foreshadowing between Sly and Petruchio. Sly's delusion could be compared with Petruchio's delusion that he has tamed Kate. As Margie Burns puts it, quote, As with any delusional victim, the ironies of the joke on Sly resemble those of the treatment of Don Quixote, where others must participate in the victim's fantasy to bring him into their world. Victimised by victim, they enter into his order of things as much as or more than he enters theirs, as with Kate and Petruchio. Burns goes on to say, quote, While the joke on Petruchio takes on a point, however, the joke on Sly, as just a joke, remains pointless and the play outgrows it. The disappearance of Sly and the other induction characters partly constitutes the disappearance of a Sly joke, and the play proves its enlargement at the end by enlarging the audience from the Sly state of mind. Burns also references a student that, quote, concluded that as the induction characters get farther and farther into the play, they simply get swallowed up. Like the audience watching, they become lost in the play, and therefore the Lord's joke partly metamorphoses into a joke on himself, as he and his attendants are swept away by the action which they themselves initiate. The effect of this in Shakespeare's day was possibly heightened by the fact that all the induction characters could double as counterparts in the play proper, with Sly perhaps becoming Petruchio, his supposed wife Kate, and, and so on. This might also explain the abandonment of a return to the induction at the ending, which in the text of Ashrew ends with Christopher Sly saying, I know now how to tame a shrew, before heading off to perform what he has learned on his troublesome wife. Margie Burns again says, quote, Adversarial relationships or hierarchies become vehicles of reciprocal exchange. This is accomplished in the relationship between Kate and Petruchio, in the relationship between the induction and the main play, and ultimately in the relationship between the ending and the missing ending. All of these relationships are subsumed by the ending of the play. This recurring theme of characters and sequences subsuming each other is reflected even in as passing remark as Grumio's, I, sir, they be ready, the oats have eaten the horses. David Daniel says the Taming of the Shrew might be viewed as a series of Chinese boxes with Kate at the heart. The remarkable thing then is, as we progress from naturalistic setting to comedy plot to farce in a series of plays within plays, by a magical inversion of what we expect, it is the story deepest within the illusion that is the truest, the most meaningful, containing the two characters who best understand the artifice elsewhere in the play. This sense of Petruchio and Kate's superior truth is emphasised by Petruchio's lines, Well come, my Kate, we will unto your fathers, even in these honest mean habiliments. Our purses shall be proud, our garments poor, for tis the mind that makes the body rich, and as the sun breaks through the darkest clouds, so honour peereth in the meanest habit. To push this a little bit, here we see that the oats really have eaten the horses, in that the most remote, inner part of the play has outgrown and triumphed over the larger exterior part.
Whether or not Shakespeare intended an ironic reading of all this is, of course, still open for debate. But what can't be argued with is that these meta-theatrical flourishes allow for multiple readings, which render Kate's long speech of submission at the end of the play at least capable of being interpreted as ironic. Personally, I believe that productions which take these moments as their basis for a subversion of a patriarchal storyline are more successful than those that play it somberly, or even as socially responsible farce. Which is, if anything, a contradiction in terms, and the play does contain, after all, many farcical elements. Not least is Petruccio's bravado, which seems to foreshadow a character like Blackadder's Flashheart, who incidentally also flew into an Elizabethan romance and whisked off a girl called Kate, although she was also called Bob. This is a hyper-masculine comedy role intended to be enjoyed and laughed at without too much introspection. Some productions have designed Petruccio as a swaggering cowboy with delusions of machoism, kind of guy who could kick a barn door open just by looking at it. This seems most in keeping with the reports of him at his wedding, taking his bride about the neck and, quote, kissed her lips with such a clamorous smack that at the parting all the church did echo. Or why he asks the surrounding company why they look at him like they saw some wondrous monument, some comet, or unusual prodigy. One last thing to remember about Shakespeare's day is that whilst women would have been able to watch The Taming of the Shrew, they certainly wouldn't be able to perform it. It would, of course, be boy actors playing all the female roles. In The Shrew, this standard practice has its workings exposed when, as Dana E. Aspinall points out, quote, the Lord directs his servant Bartholomew to play the part of Sly's wife. Here the audience would see a boy dressing up as a girl, and this would be impossible to forget when later they are presented with supposedly real girls, also of course played by boys. Back to Quilla Couch's remark that the play doesn't work as well in the reading. Well, in the reading of course, our Kate is a woman. We don't imagine her as a boy in drag. And perhaps this is why people have treated the play with a level of discomfort. As I said, Shakespeare did not return to his induction at the end of the play, but here at the end of the podcast, we will. I'll finish with a theory of Anthony Burgess's, one that he frankly admits is an unsound fancy. He starts by pointing out that this was not an aristocratic comedy, quote, it has a good playhouse reek about it. He then makes the connection between that drunk tinker, Christopher Sly's words, ask Marion Hackett, the fat alewife of Winkert, if she know me not. Winkert, or Wilmcut, as Burgess points out, was Shakespeare's mother's own village. Burgess suggests that Will Shakespeare, through Christopher Sly, presents himself here in disguise, quote, a man who tinkers with plays, who tried to be Christopher, like Marlowe, who is essentially Sly. If there's any truth in this, it adds a tempting, final, gender-crossing wink into one of Petruccio's lines I've already mentioned. His words, he says, are extempore, from my mother wit. They aren't, of course, they are scripted, and his mother wit is William Shakespeare. Thank you for listening to Ear Read This. On Friday, I'll be joined by Adam to talk a bit more about The Taming of the Shrew and lots more besides. If you'd like to keep in touch, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you've got shit to say that can't be contained on social media, you can email us a question at earreadthis at gmail.com. If you're feeling particularly nice, please leave us a review and some stars on iTunes. Happy reading. <laughs>